Hello, everybody, and welcome to the One Good Day podcast. Today, we are joined by Tasha Bailey, and we're going to be talking about how to help yourself in between therapy or without therapy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tasha. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, before we get started, uh, I'd like to give you the opportunity to please introduce yourself, tell people a little bit about you, and uh, as well as where they can find you online. Great. So I'm Tasha Bailey. I have a London accent, so I'm from London, UK. Um, I am a trained psychotherapist, a mental health content creator, and also an author. Um, so I, you know, as a trained therapist, I realize that a lot of people can't access therapy the way that they'd like to. It's very expensive or very time consuming. Um, and so I use my platform, realtalk.therapist on Instagram to share therapy tips and mental health tips so that people can kind of get you know, the, the self-love and the mental health care that they need, uh, I guess in, in the best way that they can for themselves. Um, and I have a book coming out in two weeks, which will be around the world. And it's called Real Talk Therapy Lessons in Healing and Self-Love. And it's full of the things that you'd learn in a therapy session. So things like boundaries and uh, the impact of childhood on our mental health and really kind of slowly, gently um, working through some of those things and reflecting on your life story and what you need now um, to have the best life that you deserve. Fantastic. And congratulations on the book. Uh, and just for clarification, that's realtalk.therapist on Instagram. Is that correct? Yeah. And also TikTok as well. Fantastic. And then uh, the book will be available on Amazon? Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, like, like uh, Audible, all the, all the popular. All the places we can find a book. Exactly. Fantastic. So uh, we start out every podcast talking about uh, the guest's personal relationship with anxiety. Uh, how have how has anxiety impacted your life? What brought you to become a therapist and you know, want to help people? So I wanted to be a therapist at a really young age, young age from the age of about 15. Um, I literally saw a Nickelodeon film and there was a child psychotherapist in the film. And I thought that's the job that I want to do. Um, and it's really interesting because when you train as a therapist, you have to have therapy during that training. So I had a, a therapist for five years. And I think in the third year, um, I said something to my therapist of, of like, I'm not really an anxious person. You know, people often say that I'm very cool, calm, collected. I'm very um, tranquil and serene is the vibe that people say. Um, and I believe that. And my therapist said, Tasha, but what I know of your childhood, there's probably a lot that you would have been anxious about. Um, and that almost gave me, gave me permission to be anxious. Um, I think that, yeah, I noticed, I just noticed my body being more physically anxious when anxious things were happening. Whereas before I often shut it down completely and it was very kind of numb to my anxiety. So just a pause, I've got a cat around me who's <laughs> making noise. Um, but no, like I, I, Consider myself as a not an anxious person and realize that there's no such thing as an anxious person. There is just anxiety and we all feel it in different ways and in different forms. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a bit of my, my, my anxious journey or my anxiety, my, my, my experience of anxiety. All right. 
So let's let's jump in for the the questions uh, that we're going to be talking about. Once again, the topic for today is you know how to help yourself uh, either in between therapy sessions and or you know in the event you're not going to therapy or can't afford therapy. Um, so tell us what it means for you to work on your mental health outside of therapy or without therapy. I think it's really important to have. I think even if you are in therapy, you know, having a maximum of one hour per week. And the same way that you wouldn't go to the gym and just see a personal trainer for one hour a week and not expect great results um, without doing the practice and the work outside of that. I think the same thing happens with therapy. It's important that we do um, reading and homework and reflection. It's almost like you're kind of building up your, your emotional muscles and your capacity to understand what you're feeling and know what to give yourself when you're feeling those things. Um, So it's really about kind of building that self-awareness. Absolutely. And, you know, for somebody that is dealing with anxiety that maybe can't get to therapy and needs to practice some of these, some of these techniques and tactics, uh, what are some of the ones that you recommend to help, you know, that intense feeling, some of the panic attacks, because I know from my own personal experience, I've been in therapy off and on for the better part of the last 20 years, and it helps immensely to have that sounding board. But obviously, some people can't afford that sounding board. So what does somebody in that case do that's dealing with intense anxiety? I think the first the first thing is kind of reassuring yourself and, and letting yourself, because anxiety can feel so huge and so uncomfortable and sometimes so unfamiliar. And I think it's important to say to yourself, this is normal. I am normal. This is feeling awful, but you know, this is not kind of, um, I guess not to kind of trivialize it or to make it feel like it's an abnormal thing happening. You know, we all as human beings can feel anxiety at any point in our lives, whether it's a good thing that's happening in our lives or a bad thing that's happening in our lives. So it's first just kind of giving yourself that validation. And then I think it's connecting with the body. So a lot of the time when we feel, when we notice that we're anxious, it's because our body is telling us that we're anxious. Our heartbeat is racing or we're feeling heart palpitations or sweaty or whichever. So finding ways to connect with your body because what's happening is the nervous system is communicating to us. It's saying, hey, like things are not good. We're in panic mode. Help. Please send help. Um. So one one thing that I love is like if you have a feel like a, a panic attack coming or an anxiety attack coming, to find a way to bring yourself back into the present moment for your body, uh, maybe by having like a really sour sweet, or by doing some breath work, or or feeling something really cold or something like that, it will basically bring your body back into the present and say. This thing that I'm anxious about is not necessarily happening here and now. It's probably happening from something that I felt in the past or something I'm scared about in the future. But by bringing yourself into the present moment, you remind yourself of that. Um, so I think it's good to have things like sour sweets in your bag, um, just accessible whenever you need it. Absolutely. And for those, for those that are just starting to experience anxiety, regardless of your situation, the thing that I always recommend is to go to, to your general practitioner doctor, get a physical exam, make sure that it is just anxiety. Not only do you help rule out any other potential physical issues, but it also helps mentally reassure you that as you're feeling these feelings, you know that it's just the mental side of it and nothing physical. Absolutely. 
Um, so you mentioned, you know, trying to bring yourself to the present moment. So that, you know, brings up the topic of mindfulness. Um, so for somebody that doesn't necessarily understand mindfulness, because usually if you haven't gone to a therapist or you're not, you're not familiar with dealing with this, explain to people um, in simple terms what mindfulness is and then how they may be able to use it for dealing with their panic and anxiety. So a lot of the time we kind of go about our lives kind of holding so many things in our minds whether it's like what we like to buy why to buy in the supermarket later on today or why to do at work or what are all the expectations that are put onto me and we carry all of these thoughts and mindfulness is the practice of actually taking a moment to not necessarily empty our mind but to listen I guess to, to create some peace and some space to see what our mind is carrying and to kind of create some quiet um, and when we do that, we kind of connect to what's happening to our bodies in the here and now. We bring ourselves kind of awareness. We can notice, oh, I'm thinking about food a lot or I'm thinking about this person a lot. And I guess it kind of allows us to really gently assess what is actually happening in our minds right now. Um, and it can be just by doing a one minute mindfulness of just let me just listen to what's happening in your in my, in my body right now. Or it could be a 10-minute body scan, or it could be going on a mindfulness walk where you're just on a walk in nature and, and with your phone off and just paying attention to what's around you and what's happening in your body. So it's just a practice of kind of, I guess, almost putting things away, you know, all the, all the things that occupy your mind, putting them to the side for a moment and just seeing what else your, your body and your mind are holding. And... That leads me to, you know, writing and or coloring. It's it's a mindfulness exercise that a lot of people recommend, um, you know, what, and it's obviously anybody can do it. You can get your hands on a pen, paper, you know, something along those lines. So what are your thoughts on, on, on either journaling or coloring, which is, is something that's gaining a lot of popularity in, in for adults, uh, you know, uh, for, you know, it, dealing with anxiety. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? I love it. I think journaling is really important because, you know, we have a lot of thoughts and feelings, but we can't necessarily see them. So almost like journaling or spitting them out onto paper means that we actually get to see a little bit of what we're holding internally. And then colouring, I mean, you only have to watch a child when they're colouring, do the colouring book or they're drawing and then there's kind of, they get into a bit of a zone, this kind of peaceful zone. And it's so great for our mental health. It's kind of actually moves our body, our nervous system away from anxiety mode and into a more calm state. So if you are feeling really anxious, it's a nice idea to just maybe color for 10 minutes um, or do something creative um, without needing it to be something perfect and pretty, but just to be in the process of creating something. Um, so my training is... Um, I work specifically originally with children, so I do a lot of like, creativity and play. And it's just amazing how, no matter how old you are, creativity and play and art can be so healing for our mood and for what's happening in our bodies and in our minds. And about the writing, um, I know a lot of people get concerned or judge themselves as far as the thoughts that they have and, and mm -hmm. being afraid to, to write those down. So talk through, you know, if you're going to journal, you know, are we talking literally everything in your head or, you know, are you worried about, you know, I think a lot of people are like, what if somebody sees this or what if somebody's going to read this? You know, what's the effectiveness in terms of like really trying to get everything out? 
Yeah, I think you have two options. So you can either do it like absolutely freestyle, you know, whatever's in your mind or in your thoughts, you just spit it out onto paper. Or the other way is to use prompts or questions. Um, Some people prefer that because it gives them a little bit more structure, um, a little bit more structure and a little bit more of a way to start. Um, But whichever style you choose, I think it's important to say to yourself, whatever I put on paper, let me plan what I'm going to do with that paper afterwards. So am I going to keep it in a journal on a shelf or am I going to rip it up and throw it away? And then that way you know what what the end game of this paper is going to be and where it's going to go and who's going to see it or not see it. Um, I think it's important to have that kind of agreement with yourself of like, I don't need to show this to anybody or or I don't even need to read it back myself, actually. Um, that, that was going to be my next question. Do you read it back or do you literally just get it out and then just put it on the side and never look at it again? I think it depends on you. Some people like will write to write and then never see it again. Um, but I have had clients who maybe have written it, not read it in the moment, but maybe six months later, go back and read it and think, oh, that's where I was back then. Oh. Like how I can't believe I was there at that point And now I'm here at this point. It could be nice kind of, it could be nice and difficult to kind of look back at how difficult things have been or how things are now. So I think that's kind of completely up to you and what you feel um, is, is best for you i i like to personally like say to clients maybe don't read it back but put it in an envelope and if you want to go back into that envelope you can do yeah that's that's good um and and i would assume you know you want to make sure you're in a good place before you go back and 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 read things so six months if you want to hopefully make yourself feel better about where you were and where you are now but if you're in a bad place don't go back and read bad things absolutely um so one of the other things that's free is exercise. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of whether or not exercise is a good way to help combat anxiety? So I think exercise is great because if we think about anxiety and the, his- the history of anxiety, I guess it's the word, in our bodies. So back back in the day um, when we were like prehistoric cavemen and stuff, the things that caused us anxiety were, I don't know, lions, tigers and bears that we had to run away from and looking for shelter. And so a lot of the time, the thing that would make us feel anxious, imagine it was a lion, we would have to run away from it or we'd have to um, fight it. And then that, eventually that anxiety would go because that, the lion would no longer be alive or no longer be in our lives. But now in 2023, a lot of things that we're anxious about are things that we sit at. We're sitting, you know, we're sitting reading the email that makes us feel anxious or we're sitting with our grief or, you know, we don't have to run and, and fight fight those anxieties. We're just sitting with it. And that's when it then builds up in our bodies. Our bodies are saying all this, you know, adrenaline is here. This anxiety is here because we need to fight. We need to run away from our lion or fight our, our lion. But the lions that we have now are different. So I think it's really important then to find ways to get rid of that adrenaline and that cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which we find with anxiety, um, by doing things that are active. So like maybe going for a run or a walk or doing exercise or dancing or doing things within our body to kind of get rid of some of that anxious, the anxious kind of related hormones and and chemicals that are in our body from it. Um, But also make sure that it's something that you enjoy. 
um, as well. Don't don't do something because you have to and you hate it, but do something that you feel like actually it's going to make me feel good afterwards at least. Yeah, and you know, even if it's exercising something that you enjoy at all, because uh, it definitely is the case with some people. I mean, literally getting out and going for a walk, you know, has been proven to be able to help reduce anxiety. And no matter where you are in the world and whatever your socioeconomic status is, walking is always free. So, you know, mm-hmm. if, if it's something that you have issues with, just get out and go walk for 20, 30 minutes and it helps tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let's talk triggers. Uh, you know, we talked, we kind of did this a little backwards, but, uh, we talked about what you can do when you're triggered. Let's talk about the triggers themselves. And in terms of, you know, what is an emotional trigger? How can somebody identify theirs? And then, you know, what course of action are they potentially taking once they do and identify their triggers? So triggers are usually, they're usually something sensory. So they could be a smell, a sound, a sight, or they could be something emotional, like a certain situation. Like if, for example, someone breaks your boundary, um, it can trigger your brain to remember another memory of something that's quite difficult or painful or traumatic. So for example, if I see a fire and I've had experience of being in a fire when I was a child, I'm whenever I see a flame or a candle, that might make me feel triggered, triggered to feel like, oh, I'm in a dangerous situation. I'm not safe like I wasn't when I was a child. Um, so the brain gets a little bit confused. It says, well, this is a bit dangerous. We've been here before. Let's, let's, we need to panic. Panic mode happens. Um, so that's kind of what a trigger is and, and what it looks like. And I think it's important to kind of find time to kind of list all of your triggers. There might be one, there might be a hundred. Um, and they might be things that you don't expect to be triggers. You know, it might be, I don't know, it could be anything. It could be a certain meal. It could be a sound. It could be a song. Um, it happens a lot with people who've had really difficult breakups. There's usually at least one song that reminds them of their ex-partner that could be really difficult to listen to. So I think just writing a list of what those triggers are and not necessarily avoiding them, but having an awareness of them so that you can build your kind of tolerance of them over time and maybe even reclaim them back. You know, learning that fire isn't always bad. It can be warm. It can be safe. Um, and also, uh, people that we talk much about glimmers, which are the opposite of triggers. So glimmers, um, a trauma therapist called Deb Dana talks about, talks about um, glimmers, which are very similar. So they're bits of stimuli, whether it's a sound, smell, um, yeah, sight, which rather than make you feel unsafe, they make you feel safe and comforted and looked after. So, for example, a lot of people love pumpkin spice lattes because it reminds them of like autumn and Christmas time and they feel really warm. Or maybe there's a certain dish that your parents made for you when you were younger and it just makes you feel really comforted. And these have the power to, you know, in the moments that you feel unsafe or anxious, these have the power to kind of ground you and make you feel kind of calm again and looked after. So it's good to know what your triggers are, but also what your glimmers are as well. Yeah, that <clears throat> that's great. Um, and then obviously with triggers comes sometimes, you know, these uncontrollable negative self-talk, intrusive thoughts. Um, <clears throat> how does somebody go about basically recognizing these and then 
slowing them down or, or stopping them. I know from, from my standpoint, it's, it's a snowball effect. Once you start that, that once you pull that thread, it's just going to go. And, you know, you have to try and do something to slow it down, stop it, or, or break that thought pattern. So what are your recommendations when somebody is, you know, in that negative thought cycle? I think the first thing is almost finding a way to separate it from your own voice. Um, so uh, we often, therapists often call it the inner critic. So it's a part of your your inner voice, which is very almost parental, but very critical parental, very judgmental and shaming. And, you know, you're the worst person and you're bad at this and you're terrible, terrible at this. And when that voice, when you notice those thoughts, just saying, oh, that's my inner critic speaking. It's, it's a part of me, but it's not the only part of me. There's many other parts of me. I just have to put that one to the side a little bit and listen up to the, for the other ones. So I think it's going to be good to kind of separate it. I know some clients that I have, they will actually give it a name. So they might say it's called Dave or I don't know, Bob or, or Slatter or whatever, but just find a way to kind of externalize it a little bit. Um, and then I think kind of working out where those voices come from, um, because we don't just learn negative voices out of nowhere. They normally come from somewhere in our past, maybe a teacher that we had that was really critical of us or a parent or sibling, just working out who that is, who is the kind of the ghost of our inner, inner critic. Um, and just thinking about what is the unfinished business there? Like what do we wish had happened in that moment when they were critical of us in that past? And I think the other thing is just building up other voices. Um, so I call it the inner fairy godmother. Um, okay. So just thinking of it can actually be characters or real people in your life who are kind and caring and generous with their love. And imagining if they heard what your inner critic was, was saying, what would they say in response? How would they back you up? How would they, you know, reassure you? Um, and just maybe writing those down and putting them up somewhere on a post-it note um, so that you can build the other voices, um, the more positive and reassuring and comforting voices that you have, you do have access to as well. They're just a bit harder to find. And as far as, you know, I know that identifying the, that critic and identifying some of those things is, is a lot of times what you do in therapy. So for people that aren't in there like sometimes it's hard to do that on your own mm -hmm. so if you can't afford therapy or don't for whatever reason don't want to go to therapy you know, how is somebody doing this by themselves you know because the thing that i i really want to caution people against if you're not in therapy using your friends and family for a therapist is usually not something that you want to do mm -hmm. um you know so how does one work that out on their own Mm -hmm. So you could do it as a journal prompt. So, for example, if you find on a particular day that you're being really hard on yourself, you're being really negative or something bad happened and you're saying, oh, it's all my fault. Use it as a journal prompt to say, where have I heard this before? Or when have I experienced this voice or this, this sentence before that I'm the one to blame? And just do a bit of a brainstorm. You could do a spider diagram of like the times, you know, I'm sure there's, there'll be more than one for many of us, of us there are so just do a brainstorm of where that would have come from or who might have said it before and how did that make you feel at the time and then I would end that journal prompt by by asking yourself what did you need to hear instead what was the thing that you actually need to hear instead and how can you say that to yourself now as an adult and in this moment 
Yeah, that, that's great advice. Um, so let's talk about uh, some some daily routines and resources uh, for people that are are needing help, but unfortunately not able to get help. Um, you know, what resources would you recommend um, in terms of maybe books or websites uh, other than your book, of course, uh, Real Talk mm-hmm. by Tasha Bailey coming out in two weeks on Amazon? Uh, other than that, uh, what resources would you recommend that you find helpful apps, books, websites, etc.? Um, I, I think that if you'd like to do kind of deeper work, so work in terms of like, okay, I'm being anxious. Where is that coming from in my past? I think inner child work can be really powerful and important. And there's some really great books, um, about it. I think one is called Homecoming by John Bradshaw. Um, and it's kind of, um, it's very thorough, but it also has like journal, like reflection questions and, um, creative exercises and stuff that you can do which will be really helpful and you can take it at your own pace so if you want to do kind of that deeper work it's really helpful um trying to think what else i would usually uh, i i think i think there is value in following um therapists on on instagram and social media um I think it's important to, you know, not every therapist is going to resonate for you and just find the one that you feel most comfortable with and you feel has most value to what you're working through. But it can be a good idea to kind of follow someone and, again, use their content as as journal prompts. You know, if they're talking about something like anxiety, five anxiety symptoms or something like that, you can use that as a journal prompt of, like, how does anxiety show up for me? Um yeah, um, I, w- yeah, I want to just chime in from the non-therapist anxiety guy uh, on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I do think there are some helpful therapists on social media. Um, but exactly as you're pointing out, make sure that you are taking some form of actionable, um, like some form of action from what they're saying or recommending. Unfortunately, there are therapists out there that try to play to the algorithms of social media just to build their following, and they'll just kind of leave you hanging and not give you anything to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to, to use this more to build action and take action and be constructive with it versus watching a therapist act out five symptoms of anxiety. Like that to you does no good, but other than suggest to you things that you may not have even known are going to be things that you're going to deal with for anxiety and you know take some form of action from it and if they're not providing you with some form of action that's going to help you move in the right direction do not continue to follow them mm-hmm. absolutely sorry and- it's a it's a point for me that there are some therapists unfortunately that are not that don't have the public's best interest. They're just trying to build their own brand and their own following. And and that bothers me. So it gets me a little bit excited in terms of, uh, you know, what I, what I think about it. No, I totally hear that. And I, I really agree. And I think as well, check their credentials as well. I think it's important to kind of just see, you know, if they're talking about trauma, do they actually have a trauma specific qualification for example so just just thinking about actually yeah what is what is behind this account and who is behind this account another thing that i would suggest as well is especially with anxiety is reading books that are about um 
the body and the and the the body and the brain. So, for example, um, the body keeps the score, or the body remembers. They're a little bit sciencey, but they're really good at explaining the kind of role of the nervous system and how it gets impacted by um, anxiety and by, and by trauma and stress. Yeah, I mean that's that's a big part of, of anxiety, being able to learn about the physical aspects of it. And, you know, being able to calm your nervous system and or, you know, work through some of the physical things, you know, I think some overlooked things in terms of anxiety can be imbalances. You know, is your vitamin D low or your hormones off? Is your cortisol not where it's supposed to be? And these things are physically treatable that can literally cut your anxiety in half or even less and make it a lot easier for you to deal with. So. Lastly, on this topic, because we're going to change gears here in a minute and talk about something else, uh, can you share some daily practices or routines uh, that you feel are really helpful in terms of, um, you know, I don't want to say controlling, but lessening people's anxiety? I think it's important to start your day with yourself. And that sounds really that sounds really simple, but a lot of us, we wake up and we go on our phones or we go straight to our emails and we go straight to work. But actually to start your day off by actually checking in with yourself. You know, how am I waking up feeling right now and what do I need today? What am I nervous about today? And what how will I, you know, look after myself with that later on today? Just having that kind of really early morning check-in. And I think it's important to have moments in your day where you can then regulate. Um, so, you know, having slower, slower moments in the day, whether it's like, and I don't mean just by watching TV or things like that, because that can also be binge worthy and actually not looking after yourself, but actually having moments of mindfulness, I guess is what I'm naming of five minutes of your cup of tea, just looking out the window and being mindful of yourself. Just those little moments of slowing down your body and just almost allowing your, your feelings to catch up with your body and where you are. Yeah, and there, there's also some fantastic guided meditation or mindfulness exercises. If you need that prompt, YouTube free, you know, get on there and just look up five-minute meditation, five-minute mindfulness. There's plenty of them out there. Read through some of the comments and reviews and stuff about them before you do them. But, you know, also, once again, it, it's free. So if you need that prompt, you know, it's definitely a good resource. So before we change gears, um, if you had one piece of advice you could give somebody that's dealing with anxiety that is unable to get, you know, therapy, uh, what would that best piece of advice be? It would be um, to, it's really simple, but not, (laughs) is to find a way to be kind to yourself. Because I think what often happens is we feel anxious and then we get hot, we become hard on ourselves for being anxious. And then we become even more hard on ourselves for the symptoms of being anxious. So I guess finding ways to just be really gentle. So almost imagining that it's not you that's being, well, it's not, it's you, but imagine it's being, it's your younger self being anxious. And how would you speak to that younger self? If it was a five-year-old, you wouldn't say, all right, hurry up, like, you know, stop being anxious. You'd probably be a lot more gentle and soothing um, and find a way to do that. And if you if you feel like you can't do that, maybe connecting with someone in your life who can, um, if it's a friend or a sibling, um, who can just, you know, be very gentle and tell you what you need to hear in that moment. 
Yeah, I mean, every everybody needs that positive reinforcement. Uh, so we're going to change gears a little bit and and talk about uh, stigmas of mental health. Um, I will apologize in advance if I say anything that is politically incorrect. Uh, it is not my intention to do so, but, you know, trying to keep up sometimes with the terminology that is proper. So we're going to talk about this. Um, for those that are listening, um, Tasha it, and once again, if I say this incorrectly, please let me know. Tasha, you are considered Black British. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. that would be the equivalent of African American in the U.S. for the U.S. listeners. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Okay, fantastic. So one of the things that I want to talk about that I think does not get the attention that it deserves is the stigma of mental health in multicultural communities. Um, so. I would like for you to talk a little bit about number one, that stigma in general, and then potentially number two, um, you know, how mental health may be looked at differently over in the UK and Europe versus here in, in the United States. Okay. So I would say, so the stigma of mental health um, in multicultural communities, I would say it's, there's so many reasons why there's so much stigma. So firstly, mental health or the mental health field has often been probably until maybe very recently has been very like white middle class and male um profession so if you think of like Freud and kind of everyone from kind of that era and kind of ongoing even to like the last maybe five ten years it has been just very like white middle class um and I think that means that then people in different communities diverse communities don't then see themselves in the people that they are asking for help from um and also the training that those people receive that therapists or psychologists receive aren't necessarily kind of um catered for all communities and all different diversities um so there's that but also i think you know mental health professionals have a lot of power um in terms of you know diagnosis and things like that but also if you think 20 30 years ago um i think like things like um, mental health professionals yeah they had a lot of power especially particularly for like um diverse communities um so it means that a lot of communities didn't you know feel safe or feel comfortable to access mental health support and help um and then on an, another kind of avenue of that is that some of them mostly don't have the not the language but you know I so I grew up in um, London my family are Jamaican my mum grew up in Jamaica and then she came over in the Windrush era in Britain which was in the 50s Um, and so no one had ever spoken to her about mental health before Um, and she had to deal with racism when she was here but no one spoke to her about the mental health aspect of that um, and so I ne- I grew up not having language for mental health and not really understanding what mental health was, which actually led me to the career that I now do in the curiosity that I had. Um, but I think that's very common in many diverse communities where they've had to face so much trauma and difficulty and change, but there's actually been no um, no language, no support in terms of their mental health or normalising that actually that's a very vulnerable time that you had to go through. Um, and so a lot of these communities had to be very strong 
um, and very um, durable, but often leaving their feelings behind and leaving their vulnerabilities behind. Um, so that it can be really difficult for, especially older generations of those communities, to then access help and to say, actually, I've been through a lot of difficult stuff and I want to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, there's just there's so many different ways that the stigma kind of shows up and gets in the way. Yeah. And uh, is it also looked at more of a weakness in multicultural communities to get help and it's not as accepted? Um, I mean, I, I honestly, I never even thought about the point of, hey, I grew up in this particular type of upbringing and a 45 year old rich white guy isn't going to be able to identify with my problems. I never even thought about it from that angle. Mm-hmm. I've always looked at it as, um, you know, it's more looked at as you're weak if you go get therapy. Mm-hmm. Is that also something that is prevalent in multicultural communities? Absolutely. I think it's an intergenerational pattern. It's probably somewhere a hundred, many generations before, um, someone in the family had to be strong and durable and, you know, not show their emotion in order to survive. And that pattern has carried on through all the generations, even through to now 2023, um, where it almost feels like even emotions are seen as weak and vulnerable. And so I have to close them off. Um, in order to ensure that I look strong and appear strong and I'm strong. Um, you know, for many, for many of those communities, you know, it, it meant that they felt being strong was the only way to survive. But I think, you know, now over the last 10, 20 years, people are realizing that actually trying to be strong is probably going to cause a lot more anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's going to bubble up in one way or another. Um, and when I talk about inter- intergenerational trauma, um, patterns, so, for example, there was like a study a while ago, which was about um, the Holocaust. And it was about, um, I think it was a, the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of people who had been in the Holocaust. And actually the great-grandchildren had more symptoms of anxiety and PTSD than the grandparents did or the great-grandparents yeah. did. Because it had kind of carried through into how they were up, they were brought up however many years later um so yeah that there's definitely and uh, there's definitely so many kind of ways that this kind of weak stereotype can kind of impact us even in now future generations so this ties back into you know what we've been talking about for for the for this so as somebody who is you know part of the multicultural communities what advice would you give in terms of finding a therapist and or if I don't if I'm if I'm still unwilling to get therapy uh, because of what I perceive as the stigma against me, then what path forward would you recommend? So I would say. um I mean, it's really going to depend on where you live, but. If you can find a therapist that you feel looks like you or reflects part of your identity, um, then do it. But also they don't have to. Um, you know, I've had a, a white therapist who I felt really understood me and validated me. And I never felt let down let down by her in any particular way for our difference. Um, but if you are going to see a therapist that doesn't look like you or doesn't relate to your upbringing, then just be really kind of thorough in asking them how competent they are 
you know, have they, have you ever worked with somebody that looks like me or how do you normally work with someone who is X, Y, Z? Like just really being kind of quite thorough and making sure that you feel safe with that person. Um, and then in terms of if therapy doesn't feel right, was that the question? Does it quite feel? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily if it doesn't feel right, but if you still are like, well, my friends are going to make fun of me if they find out that I go to a therapist and they um, I'm going to be looked at as weak. Um, you know, then, yeah, I mean, it kind of reiterates what we've been talking about this whole time. You can rewind this back to the beginning and listen to everything. But if you, is there any specific advice for, uh, people of color that are looking to help themselves versus what we've been talking about, uh, throughout the rest of this podcast? I think the thing I would probably add is, and, and that kind of ties into what you said about if friends say, I'm weak or whichever is finding community that is actually safe and affirming. So finding people around you, maybe not to see a therapist, but friends, people, peers who aren't going to say therapy is weak or who aren't going to say your emotions are weak, but are actually going to affirm your vulnerability and affirm the, affirm the very different parts of you, many parts of you. Um, community, community care is really important. Um, and I know that can be a bit of a search to find new people as well, but I think, yeah, trying to find different people in your life that will not necessarily be therapists for you, but they will affirm that your mental health is important and that looking after your mental health is a priority. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, with certain, certain people, you know, obviously going out and just finding new friends isn't always the easiest thing to do, but it's 2023. There's online communities everywhere. Mm-hmm. most people have some form of connectivity to the internet. So, you know, if you can't find people in your neighborhood that are going to support you, you can find people online that are going to be very supportive of you. That'll come from different backgrounds, etc. And then also I want to just remind people that if you are thinking about doing therapy, uh, most, if not all therapists will give you at least 10 or 15 minutes of a preliminary conversation before you commit to working with them and paying for their services so that you and can ask them questions. Of, I'll say it's important to kind of date around as well, if you can. So don't just, yeah. you know, meet the first therapist and stay with them, but actually kind of meet a few and see how you feel. Yeah. I mean, uh, most all, I mean, if a therapist doesn't offer you that 15 minute preliminary conversation to get to know you a little bit before they begin treating you, that should be a red flag for you. If they're like, just give me your money and we're going to get started, you know, talk to them, explain your concerns, ask the questions. And it's in terms of, you know, what Tasha mentioned, as far as have you worked with people like me, what experience do you have? And that could be even anybody of your, your own race or ethnicity, because maybe they're, they're only treating somebody else. And then maybe they have not, you know, they don't identify with you based on your background or whatever it is that you're looking for to, to connect with. So base it on whether or not they connect with you as a human, uh, and as well as, you know, your cultural, uh, upbringing and what's going to identify and resonate with you. Because if you're not comfortable in therapy, it's, there's no point in you being there and paying for it. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about uh, U.S. versus, uh, not versus, not the right word, uh, <laughs> U.S. And, and Europe or U.K. in terms of views on mental health. Um, you know, what's the perception of mental health over in the U.K.? Is it 
accepted, not accepted? Is it ba- is it the same as it is here? It just depends on the community. Depends on potentially socioeconomic status. Is it is it looked at the same, or or is it different perception? So there's a few differences. I would say this this might be projection from my end, but my um my kind of view or experience is that the UK have been behind compared to where the US are. So mm-hmm. for example, my first understanding of, of therapy came from watching American films and American TV. It wasn't widely spoken about in the UK 10, 20 years ago. And like I said, I, I learned from Nickelodeon, which is obviously American. So um, yeah, it was kind of very it was very delayed in its response to understanding mental health. When we spoke about mental health, it's more kind of the extremes of mental health. So like schizophrenia and mental depression, things like that. Um, but I would say over the last 10 years in the UK, there's been like a real kind of uprising of understanding things like self-care, self-love, boundaries. And it's become very buzzwordy, which I think it has also become probably in the US as well. It's almost, I think with the use of Instagram and TikTok, it's kind of becoming more aligned in a way mm-hmm. um one difference that i think and you might need to correct me on this but we're in the uk you can receive therapy through the um for free um it's very hard to get it um but you can re- go to your gp your general general practitioner and if you're anxious or if you're depressed you can be put into a waiting list to get therapy for free um but it's usually like a, a year waiting list. But I think from the US, you kind of have to have health insurance or something like that. Is that right? Uh, no, there definitely are programs um, in the US that you can qualify for, but they're, it's the same in terms of, you know, it's not just everybody's, it's not available for everybody. It's more based on what you earn. Um, you know, so there are definitely government programs out there for people that are less fortunate. Uh, but that too it's like you have to be very less fortunate um in in terms of being able to qualify for that otherwise there's usually some form of uh insurance that's available it's not going to necessarily get you the best care but it'll get you something uh mm-hmm. and then you know there's also therapists via like some of the online betterhelp.com type places uh that you know will help people that are less fortunate or or potentially provide you you know discounted services Okay. So I think that's really interesting because it sounds like again it's it's dependent on your um your financial situation and it's kind of more government kind of programs. Yeah. Whereas we do have charity organizations, but we also have our NHS service where it doesn't matter how much you earn, you have, you know, depending on how severe your mental health is, you have access to therapy, but there might be a long wait. So I think that's something that's kind of probably different is that the access is it's not great here but it's it's less i guess um there's less kind of um what's the word filters about who can access it mm-hmm. and who can't um, yeah i mean usually yeah. here if you're earning a decent amount of money you have some form of insurance and you can just go out and find a therapist like that's yeah, yeah. and there's a copay but it's not it's not crazy expensive you know usually it's 20 to 40 us dollars in terms of your copay and you can see somebody. Um, so it's, I mean, unfortunately in the U S it's money. It's, yeah. If you got it, you can afford it. You can get whatever you need. If you don't, then you have to jump through the hoops in order to, to try and, and get the government assistance that you need. 
yeah, that makes sense. All righty. Uh, I appreciate your time today. Uh, this was fantastic. Uh, once again, we've been joined by Tasha Bailey. Tasha, please plug your Instagram and your book once again before we wrap up. So you can find me on IG at, at realtalk.therapist and you can pre-order or slash buy my book at uh, Amazon or any other bookshop. But it's called Real Talk Therapy Lessons in, in Healing and Self-Love. Fantastic. Thank you once again for joining us today, Tasha. Thank you for having me.